Hello, and welcome to the Lend Hoping Nothing podcast. I'm Michael Humphreys, and I'm happy to be talking to you today. This is episode eight, and we're going to be talking again about the new polity shareholding essay, and this is going to be part two. Now, if you haven't listened to part one yet, I encourage you to go listen to that, give a little bit of background on what we're doing here. But again, the new polity essay is available uh, online on their blog. And my response to that essay, which some of this podcast is based off of, will be published in the 4.2 issue of New Polity magazine. But um, today, I'll kind of start off, what really got me interested in speculation, which is the topic we're going to discuss today, is I had some discussions online about buying low and selling high, Aquinas's teaching on this. And I listened to the New Polity podcast on this that you can find up on YouTube. And I listened through that. And from my studies of usury, I, I found that there were some maybe mistakes or mischaracterizations of the societas and uh, the way that they were reading Aquinas. And so I kind of started getting interested in this started discussing with other people, and then eventually I got a subscription to New Polity and read the article, and I felt that there was sufficiently enough uh, mistakes and mischaracterizations that I would uh, write a response, and that's what's being published. But today I want to talk about it uh, now that the essay is actually online for free on their blog, and talk through some of my thoughts and some other stuff that I didn't mention uh, explicitly in the um, in the essay and making some adjustments because Mark did reply to my essay or did provide a response where he clarified one thing and uh, I'm going to take that clarification into account and I'll discuss that a little bit below but kind of getting into the essay in in this podcast I'm discussing the last part of the new polity essay which uh, addresses the question of whether, um, in spite of everything that they discussed before about the nature of shareholding, whether Christians should invest in the stock market. And by my characterization, they have four distinct arguments. And I, oh, the way I thought of these is I ordered them according to authority. So the first one is, is one from Scripture, one from St. John Paul's Magisterium, one from, quote-unquote, the tradition, and finally, one that's more or less from reason. So I'll kind of proceed along those uh, divisions. So the first argument from Scripture, and this is a quote from their, their article. So, uh, quote, A Christian should not own stock any more than he should pursue individual wealth apart from work in any other area of his life. In 2 Thessalonians, St. Paul recalls, When we were with you, we gave you this rule, If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy, they are busy bodies, not doing any work. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. Take note of those who do not obey what we say in this letter have nothing to do with them so that they may be ashamed, unquote. The Greek word that St. Paul uses 
badly translated as, quote, busybodies, is the participle of some Greek word I'm not going to be able to pronounce. Dictionaries of ancient Greek say this word literally means tell others how to buy and sell or to bargain, haggle, another Greek word, over that is saleable goods in the market. If these dictionaries are indeed correct, the apostle hereby makes plain the Christian orientation toward wealth. A person must engage in productive labor in order to deserve his place in the community. So, now I am not a theologian, but it seems to me that uh, relying solely on a dictionary is not uh, the appropriate way to do exegesis. So, first of all, let's uh, consider whether busybody is actually a bad translation, because that's a very distinct claim that they make. So, first thing, Chrysostom has a homily on this passage, and he has a whole set of homilies on Second Thessalonians, but Chrysostom is going to be reading in the Greek, and he tells these idle men, he does not say, oh, stop trading in the marketplace, but he says, be quiet and do their work. So here we, we see that be quiet, and it sounds very much like you would think of busybody as someone who's interfering in the affairs of others. Now, another source we have is how did the Western Christians reading in Latin translate this? The oldest Latin translations are called the Vetus Latine. And these translated this, this Greek word for busybodies as curiose agentes, or curiously meddling, which seems to be very much what we mean by busybody. So these oldest Latin translations understand this Greek word under curiously meddling. They're not talking about people buying and selling in the marketplace or anything like that. Now, moreover, Aquinas's understanding of this passage is also the same. So he talks about those who are curiously meddling as those who are interfering in the affairs of others, and that those are who are idle are condemned specifically because when they have no work to do, they're going to do unlawful things. And you can even see in Haydock's commentary, uh, there's a very similar way of interpreting uh, the, the term busybody, and Haydock relies on Chrysostom as well. Now, the other part of this is interpreting this um, injunction from or admonishment from St. Paul as meaning a person must engage in productive labor in order to deserve his place in the community. The way that Aquinas reads this is that he sees this particular command, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. He's talking specifically about how there is a precept to supply the needs for one's own body, and that if one is able to, he should, through his own work, or through his own possessions. And later on, uh, we'll see that he considers trading uh, a lawful business. And so a work of lawful business is one of these means of providing for your own bodily needs. And so this is how he interprets uh, St. Paul's injunction. Now, the other thing is 
that there's some issues with specifically saying, you know, productive labor, uh, because uh, there was a whole controversy over the census contract. And I've talked about the census contract in prior uh, podcasts, but basically it was an agreement where the purchaser purchases some rents from the uh, seller. And so basically, financially speaking, the purchaser gives the seller a lump sum and receives a claim against the seller's property from which he derives, you know, annual rents. And these could be farms or businesses. But one of the disputes that was occurred at the time was, well, these people could live off that income and not work and seemingly contradict this passage. But the census contract was broadly approved by theologians and eventually formally approved by the magisterium, by Martin V, Callistus III, and St. Pius V. So um, these would not involve uh, productive labor on the part of the, on the buyer, and, and so it would provide that wealth. It doesn't mean that he's not doing other labor, but he could obtain that type of income and could have that particular orientation towards wealth. Uh, also, there is the case of silent partnerships as well. Uh, so, uh, as I discussed in the first part, the societas could involve someone who provided just capital and no labor. And this type of agreement, and so profit from that, and this type of agreement was uh, uh, almost universally approved uh, by the theologians. It was encouraged by, even by some popes, like Innocent III suggests that a thriftless husband go and give the dowry he received when marrying a woman to a merchant so that he could profit from it and then live off the income. So here again, you know, the the problem with um, the interpretation given by Jacob and Mark is that it's divorced from the tradition. You know, the tradition does not see, you know, having to grow your wealth through productive labor as essential to having a place in the community. These were licit activities. And this this idea that the busybody is a bad translation just has no basis uh, in the tradition. It seems like there's very broad agreement that this is a good translation. And then there, there's some other church fathers besides Chrysostom on that point as well. So the second argument, though, is from St. John Paul's Magisterium. And what Jacob and Mark claim is the following. Uh, from John Paul... Just because one has a legal claim to a share in a company and is thus in some sense an owner does not mean that his ownership is just. He categorically denounces pure speculation. So there, there's two kind of questions we can raise here. First, what does John Paul mean by speculation? And then second, uh, is this categorical, his condemnation and is stock trading even uh, part of this denouncement? So um, there's two passages that are quoted. I'm going to here read the passages more broadly uh, than the, the quotes more completely because I think the context is a little bit relevant. So the first one is from Satesimus Annus 47. So these general observations also apply to the role of state in the economic sector 
economic activity, especially the activity of a market economy, cannot be conducted in an institutional, juridical, or political vacuum. On the contrary, it presupposes sure guarantees of individual freedom and private property, as well as the stable currency and efficient public services. Here, the principal task of the state is to guarantee this security so that those who work and produce can enjoy the fruits of their labors and thus feel encouraged to work efficiently and honestly. The absence of stability together with the corruption of public officials and the spread of improper sources of growing rich and of easy profits deriving from illegal or purely speculative activities constitutes one of the chief obstacles to the development and to the economic order. Second quote is from Centesimus Annus 43. Ownership of the means of production, whether in industry or agriculture, is just and legitimate if it serves useful work. It becomes illegitimate, however, when it is not utilized or when it serves to impede the work of others in an effort to gain a profit which does not result which is not the result of the overall expansion of work and the wealth of society, but rather is the result of curbing them or of illicit exploitation, speculation, or the breaking of solidarity among working people. Ownership of this kind has no justification and represents an abuse in the sight of God and man. So some very hefty words there. So the first question is, well, what does John Paul mean by speculation? So in the New Polity essay, in footnote 37, they discuss this. So they claim that speculation means uh, buying low in order to sell high later with the hope that the value is going to go up. And the reason they give for this is that this is the technical definition given to speculation by economists. So one of the passages uses the term ex quaestus faciendo, so which means from making gains or profits. And they cite this as from medieval times, that this phrase, quaestus, was actually in reference to, or used in reference to, usury and unjust trading. They also reference the, the not the definition necessarily, but the catechism, which... Uh, says that speculation in which one contrives to manipulate the prices of goods artificially in order to gain an advantage to the detriment of others is illicit. And they say that this is merely one uh, type of speculation, um, but they largely kind of just set this aside because it's merely one type of speculation. So there are a couple of problems with what they're trying to do here as far as establish the definition. So the first thing is that the two passages actually use different Latin terms for speculation. So the, the first one, Centissimus Annus 47, actually uses a conjugation of um, speculare, where the second one in Centissimus Annus 43 actually uses a different term, ex quaestibus uh, faciendes. And so there's there's actually two different terms going on here. So from the Latin, it's not obvious that he's talking about the same things. So the second thing is that there's really no reason to assume that JP2 is using this very general uh, technical economic definition. 
elsewhere we see him using ownership, for example. So he talks about how there's a new form of ownership that is becoming important. And he's talking about the ownership of one's skills and knowledge, where in a sense, analogously, there is a certain ownership of that, but it's not the technical, economic, or legal sense. So we see that John Paul will use non-technical senses. So this isn't a uh, an encyclical that is grounded in, in technical terminology. So the, the next thing is with the ex quaestibus faciendas, it's not clear also there that he's using it in this technical medieval meaning. Now, I wasn't able to check the dictionary, um, so I, don't, I wasn't able to track down where this is actually being used, but I wasn't able to find anywhere in Aquinas, where he uses quaestus in his discussion of usury or trading in the Latin. Uh, I think in a recent podcast, Jacob mentions that this was in medieval legal treatises, but that only gives, it only says that it's even more technical uh, and that even more unlikely that that's the way JP2 is actually using it. Uh, Because again, this isn't some sort of a technical legal encyclical that JP2 is writing here. One thing I will argue, though, is that the way that the catechism characterizes speculation, specifically as this market manipulation, fits very well in with these passages. So, whereas it's not obvious that he's using a very general sense, it is clear that a more specific sense does seem to fit. So in the first passage, he's talking about the way that the state needs to guarantee the security and stability of the economy. And so one of the ways that the security and stability of the economy would be undermined would it be exactly the type of speculation that um, the catechism cites, the artificial manipulation of prices and taking the advantage to the detriment of others. And that goes back to what he was talking about prior, where workers need to be need to be able to trust that their labor is going to let's see that their labor thus feels encouraged to work efficiently and honestly. So that type of dishonest manipulation of the markets undermines that type of stability, for example. So that more specific sense seems to apply, whereas the a more general sense is questionable in the least. In the second passage, we also see this as well. So John Paul is talking specifically about uh, the means of production being utilized uh, or not utilized or when it serves to impede the work of others. So the owners are actually Uh, you know, shutting down factories or they're trying to stop workers from being uh, effective. And the example I can give here is like the way that OPEC will deliberately uh, slow down production in order to drive up prices. So that in that example seems uh, very, very much along those lines of you know, the use of the means of production in this illegitimate sense. So again, this this specific sense of speculation seems to fit much better. 
whereas it's not clear that the general sense does. So yeah, the conclusion, it doesn't seem that he's using this technical, uh, economic, modern economic sense and or the the medieval legal sense. It's It's just not clear. And then this more specific characterization of speculation as a mani- manipulative and to the detriment of others seems to fit uh, very crisply in fact. The the second part that I'll talk about is, you know, the type of category that John Paul's talking about and whether uh, stock trading even fits into that. So in the first one, he's talking about specifically, you know, activities that might undermine economic development and economic stability, things that are going to cause workers not to be able to work effectively or to trust their ability to work in the economy. Here, it's not even clear that this is really categorical. If if it had to be a category, it would be this category of behaviors that, you know, undermine um, undermine uh, the economy and development and so forth. But it's not clear that even stock trading would be involved in that. It's not because stock trading, buying and selling stocks can have good ends to it and good means and be involved in that. So it's not even clear that stock trading would be part of that in undermining the economy and its stability. So uh, the category is not clear, and then also it's not clear that stock trading is involved in that. Now, in the second passage in the Centesimus Annus 43, uh, this is even more clearly not involving stock trading because he talks specifically about the use of the ownership of the means of production to impede workers or to not use the means of production. Now, buying and selling stocks in no way impacts the use of the means of production. So if I sell a stock, I'm not shutting down a factory. I'm not, you know, know, taking the oil out of the machinery to make it harder to run. That's just not happening. So it's whatever category that... John Paul might be condemning here, stock trading does not fall into it. In fact, the category seems to be when we set capital specifically against labor. And so it doesn't seem that stock trading even falls into this. But they go on in their the, the essay to say, to, to identify specifically the stock market in this. And they say, but within investments on the stock market, the activity is intransitive. And here they're referencing a, a part of Laborum Exchurchens where uh, John Paul talks about how labor is transitive. So uh, let me start over. But within the investments on the stock market, the activity is intransitive. No operation is done to the object, and so no dominion, no creative control is expressed over it. And thus he goes even further than Sheen by stating that this sort of ownership is in itself illegitimate. It is a form of gaining wealth without giving to others. It is pretty uh, unclear where uh, Jacob and Mark are getting this from. So near the end of that passage from Centesimus Annus 43, there is a footnote that references 
section 14 of Laborum Exturcens. Now, section 14 is much, much later in the document than the, the paragraph where John Paul even talks about work as being transitive. Now, it's disputable whether trading on the stock market is intransitive because John Paul says that all work is transitive. But even here, that's not what John Paul is referencing. He's referencing a later section which talks about ownership. And so let me give a little reference to that part of the, the passage from Laborum Exturchens in section 14, So, which I think fits. So, quote, the means of production cannot be possessed against labor. They cannot even be possessed for possession's sake, because the only legitimate title to their possession, whether in the form of private ownership or in the form of public or collective ownership, is that they should serve labor, and thus by serving labor, that they should make possible the achievement of the first principle of this order, namely the universal destination of goods and the right to common use of them. So this seems to fit in exactly with what he is talking about when he says, the ownership of the means of production becomes illegitimate, however, when it is not utilized or when it serves to impede the work of others. So that's exactly what he's saying in Laborum Exturchens, that the ownership of the means of production is only legitimate when it is, to quote Centissimus Annus, it is only legitimate if it serves useful work. That clearly puts the focus on that part and not the stuff about speculation or stock trading or transitive versus intransitive work. So that, I think, makes clear what he's talking about and how stock trading doesn't even fall into this this category. He's specifically talking about the way in which the owns the ownership of the means of production is used against specifically against labor. And that's just not the case in trading. The the trading of stocks does not is not against la- labor. That's just not the way it works. So I think they're just completely misreading this passage and misreading this this citation from John Paul. So next we come to the argument from tradition, and this is this is where Mark's clarification comes in. So the problem was that I was reading the original essay, the essay we're discussing now, too charitably, because my interpretation of, of Jacob and Mark assumed maybe a possible though implausible misinterpretation of the tradition, so I could see how they would read it that way, though it was clear to me that I was wrong. But with this clarification, it's obvious that not only is it found nowhere in the tradition, but it is also contradicted by the tradition. So I'll leave that I'll leave the specifics to that to the the essays if you want to get a subscription and read those. But here I'm going to just talk about what's in the the original essay that's up on the blog. So they say, quote, the fact that one is able to increase in wealth while not putting in any labor to attain that increase or without dignifying the labor of someone else leading to the overall increase in productive labor means that someone somewhere is worse off. So what we see here is we see this kind of 
generalized theory of increasing in, in wealth. So, and there's two conditions. One, you either have to add productive labor or you have to dignify and increase productive labor. So those are the two conditions. Now, the tradition that they cite in support of this is Pseudo-Chrysostom, Gratian, Cassidorus, Astasenus, Alexander of Hales, and Aquinas. Now, before getting into the specifics, I will say that second tradition is absolutely found nowhere in any of these authors at all, in even the least degree. It is just no, nowhere. All of these authors are talking about merchants trading. So people, merchants who are specifically buying low in order to sell high. So that dignifying, increasing productive labor, nowhere in the tradition. Now, as we discussed, that phrasing is found in John Paul and Sintissimus Annus 43. However, as we discussed, there's some problems with Jacob and Mark's interpretation of that. And it's not obvious in the least that John Paul is proposing that as a condition for any licit profit. It's just not there. So this second condition, dignify and increase productive labor, not found in the tradition. And while the words are in John Paul, it's not clear that he's proposing it in the way Jacob and Mark interpret again. So here we'll kind of focus upon at the need to add productive labor. This part may plausibly be found in Pseudo-Chrysostom. So he says in, um, in a passage, and I'm taking this English translation from Aquinas's Summa, uh, he that buys a thing in order that he may sell it entire and unchanged at a profit is the trader who is cast out of the temple of God. So he's talking about the way that Jesus catch, casts out the money changers. And so also he casts out these who those who buy low in order to sell high, but without changing the thing, without bettering it in some way. And so this is the way I kind of understand the way that Jacob and Mark are talking about productive labor, is that it, it's bettering the thing uh, and leaving it not entire and unchanged. So the first thing to note, though, about Pseudo-Chrysostom is that he, while the tradition thought he was the church father, John Chrysostom, he is in fact an Arian heretic. And so really he has no authority in the tradition. And so while this passage was addressed by basically the whole scholastic tradition up until the 19th century, maybe even into the 20th, he's not an authority in the tradition. But moreover, as we'll see going forward, we'll see that uh, he's actually pseudo-Chrysostom is interpreted in such a way that this selling entire and unchanged is really sidelined or muted in their interpretation. And we'll see that in a little bit. So next one is, is Gratian. And basically the, the passage here in Gratian is the t- decretals. And all it is is it's 
the quote of Pseudo Chrysostom's um, passage on this, where he's uh, the commentary on, on St. Matthew's Gospel. So there's really nothing added by Gratian here. The only thing I would say is that this is under the section where he talks about um, it's prohibited for clerics to uh, trade. Now, Cassidorius uh, is similar to Chrysostom, where he's interpreting um, the um, those who Christ casts out of the temple as those who buy low and sell high. But he's also s interpreted similarly by some of the scholastics. Now, Astacenus uh, is a Franciscan scholastic. I was unable to find a copy of his work, but in the secondary sources I was able to find, uh, it said that he followed Alexander of Hales pretty closely. So I'm going to take Alexander of Hales and Aquinas as, as pretty central, and then also have a brief look at um, Scotus as well. Alexander of Hales is available in the Latin. So I wasn't able to find the passage that Mark and Jacob quoted because they had an incomplete citation. But I was able to find where Alexander of Hales uh, addresses this question on trading, which is, you know, buying low in order to sell high at a profit. Beginning of his, of his discussion, he quotes uh, St. Augustine, who says that while fornication is always illicit, um, trading is sometimes licit. In the body, he provides six criteria for when trading is licit, or really illicit, depending on the way you look at it. But he starts off with that it can be illicit when it's the wrong person, so clergy, wrong time, it's a feast day, wrong place in a temple or church, wrong mode through fraud or deceit, wrong cause, avarice, or wrong association or kinship. It's, it's kind of unclear what he means here, but it seems something along the lines of buying, buying low and selling high to people who are passing through. It's a little unclear there, but it's clear from this that, you know, the absence of productive labor is not among any of these causes or any of these criteria. Uh, next, in uh, one of his responses to the objections, he he discusses pseudo Chrysostom, and he begins off by discussing the intention of the trader. So he doesn't talk about the changing of the thing. He starts off with the intention of the trader: is the trader seeking profit for some good, the sustenance of his family, providing for the poor? Then it's licit. Is he seeking profit? for itself that that is evil and so this is actually the way that he says uh, pseudo chrysostom should be interpreted so this is how we should take his words as an, as uh, spe speaking specifically to this intention of the traitor next he kind of goes through three different reasons why the the trader can obtain a profit. And he says specifically, this is not in the word of pseudo Chrysostom. And so he gives one labor, but the example he gives is of the traveling merchant who takes goods from one place to another, which is notably not productive labor. He's not making the thing better. He's just moving the same thing entire and unchanged from one place to the other. Uh, the other is risk. So the merchant takes the risk that the goods might 
that his business might catch on fire and he might lose everything. And the third one is care, so that he takes care of the goods so that he's able to sell them to people who need them uh, for the sake of the common good. So these three. Notably, productive labor is not in there, but also there are these other criteria as possible as well. No productive labor, um, buying low and selling high is licit. So Alexander of Hales really does stand against Jacob and Mark in insisting that productive labor is necessary. Next, we come to Aquinas. Now, the odd thing about Jacob and Mark's quotations of Aquinas is that they never actually quote his passage from the Summa Theologica, where he talks about trading, which is the second part of the second part, question 77, article 4. They cite, for example, his commentary on Aristotle, where Aristotle is discussing trading and usury which is consistent with what he's talking about in the Summa, but the Summa takes it a few more steps in development. And then they also quote a passage, some stuff from his discussion on usury for some reason, which didn't make a lot of sense to me. But Aquinas and Alexander are very similar. Aquinas focuses on that uh, trading is licit if it has a virtuous end and such as the care of the family or the poor providing for the common good. So that's the general body of the text. Now, discussing pseudo-Chrysostom, he leans on this text. So he talks about how, or this interpretation, and, and trading becomes illicit when it profit is sought for its own sake, and this is how he interprets pseudo-Chrysostom, similar to Alexander. So the, the person who actually changes the things and makes it better receives the reward of his labor, so that's licit. The one who doesn't change the thing very often may seek profit for its own sake or may uh, it's common or common danger that that happens. But if he does do that, but he has some virtuous end in mind, then the prophet is still licit. And so this is how he interprets Pseudo-Chrysostom, that his rejection is specifically against those merchants who are seeking profit for its own sake, which places the creature over the creator, where they should be seeking some sort of virtuous end. Uh, Later on in the second objection, he talks about a couple of different ways that one can profit uh, from buying and selling. Here he's talking specifically about someone who isn't a trader. So if you bought a house and then sold it later, but you bought it in order to use it, it's not trading, but you're still buying and selling for a profit. Kajitan actually says that these apply to the trader just as equally. But one of them is a change in price based on time or place. And so really here again, though regardless of that, we see no requirement of productive labor in order for uh, trading to be licit. So then we come to SCOTUS. SCOTUS, very similar sounding to another part of Alexander, requires labor, risk, or care. And even here, he allows for a retailer, so someone who imports goods and then sells them the community. And so 
this is justified because he's supporting the common good, but also he's taking a risk in that and he's taking care of the goods. And so again, a retailer is not putting in productive labor and he's still profiting from that. So none of these authors have any requirement for productive labor. It's not, it's not plausibly in the text. And they give other reasons why why profit might be sought. And, you know, this continues along the tradition. So as I mentioned, Cajetan, Billuart, who is a famous French Dominican, and even Ligori talks about it along these same lines. And there's no requirement of specifically productive labor. So it, it's quite strange, in fact, how Jacob and Mark are interpreting these authors uh, because it seems that they all stand against this position that they're taking. Uh, the next thing I'll talk about is the actual logic that they kind of give. So uh, in the essay, they give an example of why this type of behavior is, is evil. Quoting from the essay, the shareholder grows in wealth and so in purchasing capacity without working, starting a business, providing jobs, or otherwise improving the world for others. On the other hand, this is a sort of sin of omission. The shareholder does not contribute to the common good. On the other hand, his increased purchasing capacity increases the prices of goods and services in society in which he is embedded. This can be clearly seen in real estate prices. If he buys houses with the money produced by shareholding, he will raise rents and house prices for his neighbors without providing them with any social benefit to make up for the difference. The, there are a number of problems with this. So the first thing is that the shareholder is blamed for increasing house prices and rents. And so, first of all, it's implausible if he buys one house that that is going to move the market at all. And so this example just doesn't seem to fit. The second thing is that the shareholder is found blameworthy because of the tertiary act of another. And what do I mean by that? So the primary act, the thing that's supposed to be evil, is the selling of the stock. The secondary act is the buying of the house. And then the tertiary act, which he doesn't even do, is that the prices of other houses and other rents go up. So these are prices that other people control. He's found blameworthy because of other people's acts. But it also cuts both ways. So if he sells stocks and gives that money to the poor or starts a business or some other way supports the common good, then hey, the world is better for it. So the selling the stock in that case is not evil because of that. But also just the logic of working through this. It is just cherry picking what actually supports the common good. So someone else wanted this stock in order to grow their wealth, in order to have another share in this company. That is good. Exchange as such is part of the common good and supports the common good. Buying that house. Someone needed to sell that house and this person bought it. That person's ability to sell the house and then move on with their life is another support of the common good. And, um, and then really just the company itself 
supports the common good. Sure, they didn't start the company, they didn't work at the company, but they owned it. And that company, all else equal, was doing good work. It was providing dignifying labor. And so it it really was providing real value for society. And this would be very similar with just a sole proprietor who owned a business and hired out all the labor and then sold the business later. And so this would even plausibly fall under their second condition, I think, because it's providing dignifying labor to to workers. Now, we come to another important point, and this is the census contract that we discussed earlier. Now, when I discussed the census contract, the, the thing I noted was that it involved no productive labor on the part of the purchaser. Also, it did not necessarily involve dignifying or expanding the work of the seller because the seller was not required to put that money into the business. He could do whatever he pleased with it. So if he wanted to go on pilgrimage, if he wanted to you know, pay off other debts or anything of the sort. So the census contract, which was has been formally approved by the magisterium as licit, fails to meet either of these conditions laid forth by um, Jacob and Mark. And so would be, according to them, an illicit form of uh, gaining and growing your wealth. So their position perhaps stands explicitly against magisterial teaching in this sense, with this approval of the census contract. Now finally we turn to the argument from, from reason. And here this, this is, comes near, very near the end of the essay. And basically, the argument is that the seller believes that the, the stock is bad. And maybe the, the buyer knows better, but the seller believes it's bad. And the buyer believes it's better. So the way that it's put here is that structurally speaking, they're each taking advantage or at least trying to take advantage of each other and they each are treating the other as a fool and uh, that it becomes quote an act of mutual disdain the problem with this reasoning is that it could be applied to any exchange whatsoever so if i sell you my lawnmower you know i'm just rubbing my hands together and saying now what an idiot He's buying my lawnmower thinking it's worth something. Whereas he's looking at it, he's like, ah, what an idiot. He doesn't know what the, you know, the mowing market is going to change into in the next year. And so there's mutual disdain. Now, sure, that might happen, but it's not structural. It's not in the very nature of that type of exchange. It's not in the nature of stock trading. And it's just silly to assert that. It's a caricature of this type of exchange. But the the flip side is that we can kind of think of this along two different scenarios, generally speaking. So the first scenario would be where one of them actually knew some sort of inside information. So they had some sort of insider trading sort of going on. And so in this case, they would actually, in fact, know that the stock was worth more or worth less because they had some sort of information. 
And this, in fact, would be unjust in itself because it would be buying or selling at unjust prices. And so to the detriment of the other, taking advantage of them. So yes, that would be categorically evil. This, however, is not the nature of all stock trading. Um, So stock trading, if you don't know, there's going to be risks involved. Maybe it'll go up, maybe it'll go down. Um, even and so you may even disagree about this and the article or the essay agrees that there may be disagreements but even if they agreed on it completely one party might just say hey um, you know I need to pursue other ventures I'm trying to retire I have things to pay for and the other guy the buyer may just want to buy it to grow his own wealth and take that risk yeah sure there might be bad intentions involved but the buying and selling of this isn't like, you know, you're rubbing your hands thinking you're taking advantage of people. It could be just perfectly as much like, yeah, I want to take this risk. I, I hope that this company is going to improve and I think I have good reason to believe it. The one who's selling it maybe has good reasons to sell it and not because he thinks that's, you know, going to lose its value. Again, this is no more structural than a grocer who's selling fresh eggs. So um, it's it's really a caricature of the ex- type of exchange that's going on, and even exchange, generally speaking. So kind of conclusion here is that the arguments against buying low and selling high really just fail in general. The arguments against stockholding in itself also just fail. They don't work. The argument from scripture is based on bad catechetical work divorced from the tradition. The reading of John Paul is um, just a bad interpretation, trying to force a specific definition on him, uh, misreading and misciting passages. The, The tradition clearly stands against them, Uh, I don't know where they're reading this from. And even potentially the magisterium is standing against them with the the approval of the census contract. And then finally, just this, the way that they treat stock trading is just a mere caricature. None of their arguments about stock trading per se in itself really work. There's all sorts of good things to say about the sort of accidental problems with it. But That is exactly where we can start to have a conversation because stock trading is not evil in itself. So then we can have the conversation, well, how do we do it well? How do we we trade and exchange well? And this is what we ought to aim at. So uh, this went really long, but I hope it was valuable. Um, If I got anything wrong, you have any comments or questions, you know, please leave a comment below, email me, or just let me know. So, you know, thank you for listening and uh, have a good day.